Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest podcast, this one being for February 2015. Of course, February for most of us means just one thing. It means the Blackpool Convention. And uh, and although the date of the Blackpool Convention kind of moves slightly, it's always over a, a long weekend, of course, but whether it's right at the end of the month or whether, as on this occasion, uh, it's really only just past the middle of the month uh, will depend on the year. But uh, it makes a huge difference, actually, for people like me who are going to be dealers at the convention, because there's an awful lot to get ready for in a big event like Blackpool. And the the sort of the schedule that needs to be put in place to get enough stock prepared and to get all the publicity materials. And certainly in, in my case, I, I usually bring out a couple of new tricks for Blackpool to get all that ready and all the publicity in terms of catalogue and website pages and so on all updated in time. It makes quite a big difference whether it's at the beginning of the month or the end of the month. So it's a bit of a rush this year. But it's always an exciting time and for so many magicians to get together in one place, it really is an extraordinary and rather unique event. I can't think of another convention anywhere in the world that attracts three and a half thousand magicians. I mean, it's it's phenomenal. And for it to be so successful in um, a seaside resort like Blackpool uh, in February, when the weather is usually pretty bad, it's windy, cold, sometimes wet, sometimes even a bit of snow about, then um, it's amazing that uh, despite all that, the pull of the convention is so huge that people will travel from all over the world to attend it. Um, it really is a one-off. So I shall be there in the dealer hall in my usual position uh, and next to me will be the magic scene stand as well. And um, I look forward to being able to hopefully demonstrate um, well old products and any of the new stuff that I'm bringing out too. And it would be great to see you. So if you're coming by, do come into the into the corner of the main dealer hall and you'll find me there and come and have a chat and see some magic. And if you fancy purchasing one or two things, that'll be great as well. After all, for us dealers, that's what it's all about. Over the Christmas period, I, I did a number of quite large um, dinners using my strolling magic. And um, it was uh, brought to my attention yet again um, the way that the behaviour, if that's the right word, of the people who go to some of these events has changed over the years. And when we all know that a lot of people, especially with big company dues where there's a free bar, tend to go to these events and basically just drink as much as they can in as short a period of time as they can, which can make it difficult for us entertainers. But the, the other thing that I've noticed, and it seems to be gradually getting worse, is the way that um, so many people, particularly younger people, they actually don't stay at the table uh, during the meal. It, it's, it's extraordinary. There is virtually no moment when everybody is sitting down all at the same time at some of these events. Some people have either gone up, got up to go to the bar to get extra drinks, or they've gone to the loo, or they've gone outside to have a cigarette. And a combination of all these things, or the other thing they do, of course, is uh, they get up and go to and stand next to another table and talk to somebody that they know on another table. So you factor in all of these things and you suddenly realise that you're looking around for a table that's complete and uh, has everybody in attendance, as it were, and when, at a time when they're not actually eating, because... I don't know about you, but when I'm doing um, table magic, I don't I don't like to perform when they're still eating. Um, it's too distracting and it's it's not relaxing for them. And and I don't think you get such a good reaction. So I always try to time it so that basically everybody's finished 
either just finished a course or they're waiting to have the next course served. And of course, it's those gaps when people are more likely to get up and go out and do one of the things I've just mentioned. Now, whereas at one time you pretty much could guarantee that at every event, people would basically they would sit down at the beginning of the meal and they pretty much wouldn't move um, until the end. That doesn't seem to be the case at all. And I did one company event in December this year or last year um, that was particularly bad for this. Um, They all sat down right at the very start eventually. But I reckon that within 10 minutes, there wasn't a single table that didn't have somebody missing. Um, And and I sort of would go up to table and suddenly discover that three other people were missing. And then I never knew quite whether, shall I just perform and the three people are going to miss out, which is actually what I ended up doing, of course. Or do I wait? Because sometimes people go, oh, no, oh, they were really looking forward to seeing the magic. Don't don't start now. And so you felt, oh, OK, well, I'll come back later. Um, so I don't know why it is people, maybe it's a sort of a lack of training of sitting still. I don't know what it is, but they do seem to, to want to move about a lot more. And I think it does make um, not only our job actually at the table, if there are people missing and then they arrive back while you're performing or they will suddenly sometimes get up while you're performing and walk out as if you're not even there which is another um, puzzling thing in terms of politeness at the very least but of course the other thing is even if you all of your table is there if there's a constant movement of other diners sort of getting up pushing past if it's a bit cramped on space not only have you got the waiting staff who are constantly pushing past you and trying to get through, but you've got all these other people who are wandering vaguely around as well. So um, I suppose it's just a, another thing that's th- another obstacle that is kind of thrown in the way of our strolling magicians as we're trying to do our table magic. And it's something that uh, we just have to learn, I guess, to cope with. A few weeks back, I was um, reading an article that I'd linked through to from magic week and um, it was an article on magic creativity and inventors and it was written by a guy called rick lax this is not somebody i'm aware of i haven't heard of him before i I think he might have been american but i don't know Uh, and i haven't actually um say heard of him before and he'd written this article on on the way that um magicians come up with new material and he has a theory And his theory was that 90% of magicians um, lift other people's material to use in their acts complete. So in other words, they will buy a trick from a magic dealer, say, or read a routine in a book or see it on a DVD. And basically, exactly how that is presented, both, you know, presentation and method, they will take it, put it in their act and do it verbatim without changing it virtually anything at all. And he reckons 90% of magicians do that. Then he says he thinks there's 1% of magicians and only 1% who are truly innovative. In other words, these are people who really do think outside the box uh, and who create unusual things that are not derivative, but which are very much um, on their own in terms of the thought processes that brought them about. Just 1%. And then the other 9% of magicians, he thinks, are people who will 
take other people's ideas and they will twist them and adapt them and change them, hopefully trying to improve them, either to suit themselves or, of course, in in the case of um, people who market their products, perhaps to market them as well. So I, I thought this was quite an interesting. I don't quite know where he gets his statistics from, um, whether he's just plucking figures out of the sky or whether he has any sort of real data to back this up. But it is an interesting thought, isn't it, that um, where would you place yourself in that? I mean, I would probably put myself in the 9%. I do. I do. I tend to take magic and both the marketed stuff and the stuff I have in my own shows as well. I will always take it and immediately start moving it and twisting it and, and, and changing it and morphing it into something that, that, that feels comfortable to me. I have a particular performing uh, personality. There are certain moves that I enjoy doing or that I feel competent to do under fire. And so what I tend to do is if I find a trick that I really like, um, unless it has the right combination of the things, the factors in it that make me feel comfortable doing it, I will immediately start changing it. Um, 90%, uh, I think that's quite a high figure. I I would have said that um, a lot of magicians... I suppose, particularly those who perform a lot, um, you get to know what suits you and what doesn't. And so I would have thought, if only in terms of presentation or patter, that a lot of people would make my at least minor changes and wouldn't just take something completely exactly as it's being presented to them and just go out and do it. Um, I, I would have thought 90% is, uh, is quite quite high. And 1%, that's probably about right. I mean, there are certain people who just uh, are sort of geniuses, really. They they have a way of looking at things which is is truly, truly different. But even those people, most of the time, they are basing their creations on things that have come before. They may not be in the recent past. They may be 100 years or more ago. It may be longer ago than that, even. But um, they are still in at least in a small part, I would have thought, likely to be basing what they do on something that has come before. The way that they adapt it, of course, uh, they may change it radically and they may, in fact, find a very different way of approaching something. Which, So you could say, well, that is truly innovative. But, um, but certainly 1% would be about right. So where do you where do you come? Because I think there's a lot of um, thought in magic that, oh, if if you're not being creative, then then you're not much good as a magician. And I'm really not sure that's true um, because of the 90 percent of people, according to Rick Lax, who just take other people's stuff. Well, it could well be that a lot of those people are very, very good at knowing what works for them. And they just search around until they find routines that fit. They don't need to change them. So that's actually not a bad thing, is it? That's not something to be decried in any way, um, because in the final analysis, all we're looking to do, if we're performers anyway, is to find magic that works, um, that's entertaining for our audiences and that we can do well um, and which register well. So um, whether we take it and adapt it or whether we don't need to, we're just really good at finding stuff that suits us. It doesn't really matter. But I thought it was an interesting article anyway, and I really would like to know where he got his figures from. I think there's no doubt that most of us um, are really busy a lot of the time, Um, particularly people who um, have a full time job and who like to do their magic and, and so on on the side 
or even people who do magic virtually full time. Um, we all seem to fill our lives these days with so much because there is so many uh, th- there are so many different things that we can uh, we can do and which can take our attention. And I think sometimes trying to get the balance, they talk about a, a work life balance, don't they? They talk about people who have full time jobs, uh, nothing to do with magic, just a regular job. And the way that sometimes, particularly when you, you go up the the sort of the scale of um, the promotional scale, if you like, and you get higher up in, in, a, in a company, that it, the time um, that you need to spend doing your job is, gets more and more and more. And the demands made by a lot of employers these days um, are real, I think, basically, a lot of the time, really unreasonable. And they expect um, people to, especially with mobile phones and and obviously computers and so on, everybody can be contactable at any moment. Uh, And so it's very difficult to switch off. So trying to get that life work life balance, I think is really quite difficult. Now, if you throw magic into that equation and magic, uh, even as a hobby, uh, can be a very all consuming thing, can't it? And um, if you want to do justice to the magic that you do, then the work-life balance, the work-life magic becomes a triple sort of balancing trick. Because if you make the assumption that your work is your work, okay, and unless you happen to be somebody who has a lot of spare time when you're at work and can sort of practice your magic there, perhaps, as some people I know do, uh, but generally speaking, that doesn't, that doesn't work, of course. So that means that your the, the part of your um, life, the part that is not work, which will probably, for most people, be the smaller part, You then have to decide how much of my free time am I going to spend reading magic magazines, watching magic DVDs, going down the magic club, doing semi-pro type shows, um, practicing magic, meeting magic friends. How much of my life am I going to to spend doing that? You know, I've got a family. I might have kids um, who need my attention. I may have a partner or a wife who who needs my attention. and I think sometimes trying to get that balance right within the, your spare time is also very difficult. Uh, and that's why when um, sometimes people say to me, uh, oh, um, I bought that trick off you um, last year at Blackpool. So we're talking about, you know, t- 12 months ago. And they go, yeah, I haven't actually got out the packet yet. And, I, and my initial reaction is, what? How can you have bought something and not even unpacked it yet? But actually, when you think about it, you can see how that might happen. I mean, how many of us get a monthly magic magazine, for instance, and discover that um, the following month's one has arrived and we haven't hardly, if at all, opened the previous months? You'd think in a month there would be time to sit down and just go through a magic magazine. But sometimes that isn't the case. And the reason is because the balance of the magic to other things in our spare time isn't quite right. And this can be, I think, very frustrating for a lot of people. And it's why a lot of people say, oh, I wish I could give up my job and do magic full time, um, which is, of course, what quite a few people do when they retire. They, that becomes um, their job, if you like, being a magician. Um, and people like that. They like to be able to do some shows and do all the studying that they want to do in magic and, and go deeper into certain aspects of magic because they haven't got all their day taken up with a job. And also they're not as tired um, because a job can be very demanding. It's very tiring. It keeps you on the go. It's distracting mentally and, and exhausting physically. So um, therefore you don't have as much energy to put back into magic. 
Whereas once you've retired, although you're older, you do have more time. So um, getting that that balance of magic and, and the way I've always thought about it is that, um, I mean, I'm lucky because I do magic basically all day, every day. There is some aspect of magic that I'm involved in all the time, pretty much. Um, and the difficulty there is also keeping a balance, incidentally, when you're a full time pro and you're self-employed, it's very hard to say no to things when opportunities come up and so you end up saying yes to just about everything and if you're not careful your work life which is a work equals magic life balance gets skewed that way and you find you're doing magic all the time and you're not giving yourself enough time to relax and do the other things outside magic that you should be doing but um but it's certainly if you have a regular job then i've always thought that it's kind of nice I think what I would do is I would ring fence some time. It might be one evening a week, for instance, uh, that you know basically on a fairly consistent basis you're going to be free. And I would um, say, right, that's my magic evening. That's the evening when I'm going to catch up on my magic reading, watch a magic DVD, practice, or just have a play around with some tricks. And I knew that for three hours, say, on a Wednesday evening, that's what I was going to do every week. And I think that would be great because then you would look forward to that time. And when you got your magic magazine, you thought, well, I'll, I'll, I'll put that aside. I'll look at that on Wednesday. And you wouldn't get frustrated. And, and that trick that you bought at Blackpool wouldn't still be unopened a year later because you would open it on one of your Wednesdays. So just a thought, just a way of trying to uh, organise your leisure time so you get enough to uh, satisfy your, your magic hobby. Last summer, I was doing um, a private party, which was taking place. Um, well, it was it was sort of like a holiday, looked like a holiday cottage out in the countryside. It had um, sort of it was sited on a what obviously used to be an old farm, so it had sort of you know open sided barns and they had straw bales for people to sit on and they had a hog roast going it was great great occasion, lots of people there and I was I was mixing and mingling doing magic for them. And I went up to um, there was there were two ladies uh, standing uh, talking to each other who I at one point I realized I hadn't entertained. So I went up to them and I introduced myself. Oh, I'm the magician. You may have noticed me going around doing some magic. I'd love to show you some. And one of the ladies says said immediately, oh, no, I can't possibly watch that and turned around and walked away. Uh, oh, right. OK, I said. So the other woman looked slightly embarrassed and said uh, said to me, oh, don't worry about her. She, she's always like that. She she can't watch magic. She's got a thing about magic. Um, and, I, and I said, oh, OK, that's no problem. Anyway, so I didn't think much more about it, although I, I did remember it because I thought, well, that's a bit odd. Uh, about two months ago, um, I was doing another show, this time completely different type of event, and the same thing happened with another woman. Uh, it was a, a drinks reception prior to a dinner, and um, I went up to a group of people, five or six people, some of who I was, started to, d- to do some magic. And one of the women said, uh, excuse me. And she turned around and walked away. And although that in itself is not terribly unusual, people do that from time to time. When I went then in to do the magic around the tables uh, at the dinner itself, while I was at one table, two women came up to me and they said, um, hope you don't mind we're not being funny but um would you please not come to table 11 because we have a lady there who can't watch magic 
and it really bothers her and we appreciate it if you would you know go past us I said okay and it was the same woman it was this same woman because I looked across and I could see her there who had walked away out in the drinks reception I said no that's absolutely fine I thought well, that's good for me one t- less table to do uh, I said quite understand and it's led me to think well this this is kind of odd so uh, what I didn't know and what I have since um, did a bit of research and found out is there is something called rhabdophobia, R-H-A-B-D-O-phobia, rhabdophobia. Have you ever heard of that? I hadn't. And apparently rhabdophobia is actually a sort of, of, a, of an illness. It's a fear of magic and magicians. Now, at first I thought, thought it was, oh, this is a joke, you know. But actually, apparently, in the same way that some people have a have a, a really scared of clowns, uh, there are other people who, for some reason that is hard to explain, I guess, have an actual fear of magic and magicians. Now, we're not talking about a preference here. Oh, I, I, you know, people say, oh, no, sorry, I really don't like magic. They may have had a bad experience with a magician once or they, they just don't like the challenge that they feel magic is setting up for them. But I think this is a stage further on from that. This is not a preference. This is a sort of... Uh, uh, an actual fear, a phobia that they cannot control. And I never uh, sort of realised that anything like this could possibly exist. I mean, wow, I don't know how that ever gets into a person, whether it is something that happens to them perhaps when they're children or something like that, I don't know. But apparently it is a medical condition. So there you go. So if you ever get a situation uh, where somebody does that to you, um rather than make perhaps a, a sarky remark because that's that's the the or i am quite harmless you know, i don't bite or some other sort of flippant comment actually it may be more for these people than you realize and it's not actually as i say a preference it is something they can't control and therefore to a certain extent you need to let them off the hook so have you ever heard of that i know i certainly haven't It never ceases to amaze me the the amount of interest that there is in card magic. I mean, when you think of the number of books and DVDs that are devoted entirely to cards and the number of people, for that matter, for whom card magic is the only type of magic that they ever look at or ever do, it's extraordinary, really, isn't it? I mean, I like a good card trick like anybody else. But I have to admit that I do prefer a, a, a broader range of magic uh, and not just cards. All cards sometimes can be uh, a little intense. But I do, uh, and I have seen it many times, I do admire people who can take a subject like cards and go into it in such incredible depth. And the amount of creativity and uh, little touches that people um, come up with with cards, it seems almost limitless. Um, now, as you know, I'm the editor of Magic Scene, and um, although we have a magazine, we also publish books. And this February at the Blackpool Convention, we're releasing a brand new hardback book by John Carey. This is almost exclusively on cards. John is a great guy. He um, has a lot of very good ideas achieved in um, very straightforward ways. Um, his plots are not overly complicated usually. And most of the time, his card magic is is very accessible and straightforward to do. And um, we've got a book that's coming out. It's having six, 70, um, around about 70 effects in it, most of which come from John, most of which are cards. There's a, there's a couple of coin things, but the rest are all cards. 
And there's also about um, a dozen or so contributions from some of um, John's uh, friends in magic, people like John Bannon and Peter Duffy, people like this. And this um, this uh, 200 page hardback book will be released at Blackpool. And I'm sure it will attract a lot of interest. Um, we've already got it on pre-sale and we've already sold pre-sold um, a lot of um, copies ahead of its publication. And again, it's because people have a great interest in card magic. I think particularly card magic from people who know what they're doing. Um, I mean, there is a market, of course, for the very highly skillful, um, almost esoteric type card stuff. Um, and there will always be people who are interested in that. These people are, who are interested take, of course, the whole subject of card magic to a, quite often to a whole new level. But for most people, what people are looking for, I guess, are practical commercial tricks that they can either entertain the friends down the, the magic club or which they can take out and show to lay people. And contrary to what um, you can be told sometimes, people say, oh, no, you know, lay people don't like card magic. Well, some lay people don't, but a lot of them do. And um, I do quite a wide range of magic for lay people. And I don't do that many card tricks for them. But sometimes I'll get asked, I say, oh, do you do any card tricks? And I think the reason is, is because everybody, even people who don't do magic, the average Joe, if you like, at some point has been taught or has been or has seen and then learned a trick, a card trick. They have, and they often say, oh, can I show you my card trick? And I kind of think, well, if you think I'm going to lend you my pack of cards for you to show me a trick when I'm supposed to be working? Well, actually, no, although I don't put it quite like that. But um, there is obviously, a, there is an interest in cards. And so uh, there is so much material out there that people who enjoy card magic really are spoiled for choice. And then, of course, you have people such as um, Paul Gordon who, who in... Uh, professional magicians whose entire repertoire is just cards um obviously in order to make that work you do need a good personality because cards themselves can be boring one card trick after another if they're not presented right with somebody like paul who's got a very uh, extrovert personality then it comes across really well and it just goes to show that um you know all this information out there about cards is valuable to just about everybody when somebody makes an inquiry for a, for a, some close-up magic, I reckon it's really important that as magicians, we make it clear to the booker um, exactly what is and what is not possible. Because I think sometimes they, they, they may come with unrealistic expectations of what we are able to do. You know, I'd like to book you for an hour and we're having 300 people to a sit-down meal. Uh, right, OK. Now, you could just take the booking, but <laughs> there is absolutely no way that one magician is going to be able to get round 300 people in an hour. Um, and sometimes I think we, in our perhaps our enthusiasm to get a booking, we may agree to stuff which then we can't deliver on. And that makes it look like we failed to provide what we were being paid for, whereas actually what we failed to do was to educate the booker in advance as to what is and is not possible. Um, I, I tend to charge by pretty much by time when I do uh, strolling magic or table hopping magic. I, uh, I have a minimum period of time, um, usually an hour and a half, although occasionally for very small events I'll agree to an hour. Let's say an hour and a half, two hours, three hours. And what I try to do is I try to find out the details of what the booker 
um, actually is having what type of event how many people is it a sit down is it a mix and mingle what is it and from that I can then judge how long I'm going to need to get round the people and therefore to to do the right coverage that people are expecting and then I quote for that rather than letting them make the decision and tell me how long they want me for um and I think also the conditions under which you're expected to perform. Um, for instance, um, occasionally you'll have someone will say, uh, yeah, we want you to come and you know mix and mingle. People will be relaxing, having a drink. If you don't find out whether there's any uh, music going on, for instance, there may be a disco and they may think that you, while the disco is on, that you're prepared to go round people sitting at the tables who are not dancing and entertaining them. You could turn up and find there is no extra room. There's no breakout room where people are bar or anywhere like that where people can get away from the music. And you can be left in virtually no lighting trying to combat a full-blown disco. That's not the booker's fault. That's your fault because you didn't ask the question. Um, if you find out what what is going on in the booking, what else is happening, get a rounded picture of what the event is likely to, to be and how it's going to pan out then you can say, well, look, um, am I going to be performing at the same time the disco is on? Uh, because obviously that's not going to be possible. Um, if it's before the disco starts, that's fine. Um, but you understand, of course, that I need a bit of lighting and people need to be able to hear me. Now you're educating the booker and the booker then will understand. They can say yes or no. But at least it means that you will be able to deliver what you've promised rather than promising something that when you get there, you discover it is actually impossible for you to do. So there we are. That's February's podcast. Thanks ever so much for, for listening along. I hope you've enjoyed it and given you some food for thought. And uh, I hope that you'll uh, come back and join me again next month. And don't forget, if you're going to the Blackpool Convention, I would love to see you. Please do come and say hello, because I do hate doing magic standing there doing magic for myself. Have a good month. See you next time. <laughs>